Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And, uh... We're receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past. The turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 993.ac0245, certificate number 53432, Project Cybersyn. Possibly Cybersin. Cybersin. El Proyecto Cybersin. Cybersin or Cybersin. We spend an inordinate amount of time in this reference work explaining to the future which elements of our moment or, or history are or are not compatible with Marxism. We try. We have, try. But do you have the sign? The thing is, it we're, changes we're the, all the time. We're the ultimate arbiters. Oh, the this. sign got... Uh, yeah, this room got clean. Yeah, the sign got filed here. And now we don't. It's got to be over there, right? It must be here somewhere. Oh. Well, we need also we need just like a hand sign for compatible with Marxism, so we can when we're out in the out in the, the fancy restaurants you like to go to that are not compatible with Marxism. Yeah, I can like do a sign where it's like I don't think those are sustainable row, and you can be like, actually, we'll skip on the what caviar. Uh, yeah, uh, um, I mean, unlike some other authoritarian movements, Marxist Leninism never really had a good hand sign. No, that's right. Is that right? That's right. Well, we, they didn't salute any particular way, did they? I can't or, think of one. I mean, sort of just generally fascistic. But... I could like do an impression of embalmed Lenin. Is that I, the sign? I mean, I thought that was your impression. You did every time I did an episode. That's that's what I'm doing right now. Lol. Except this is your episode, so you oh, have to right. come to life. I'm I've got afraid, to, my I'm, friend. I'm going to have to wake up from my long nap. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think either of us, if the chips are down, if we're going to break the kayfabe for a moment, are super hardcore believers in any particular strain of of uh, communism. 
No, in fact, I, you and I tend to uh, be fairly free-thinking. We, uh, we, we appraise every situation according to its own... From each according to its uh, merits. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we are a, we're a meritocracy uh, here. Wh- whatever system works best in any given situation. There is something, you know, there's a lot of retro fun to be had in talking about, uh, you know, the international revolution of the working classes because it seems, it seems kind of pleasantly old-timey. It does um, to us, but when I think... When divorced from, you know, I mean, we're not tankies is what I'm saying. But I think young people feel like, uh, oh, it's very valid and new and contemporary. That's the thing. I've got numbers. So I was looking at how capitalism and socialism poll. Oh. And historically... Today. You're saying, yeah. Historically, oh. capitalism has pulled much better than socialism. Oh, it outpolls socialism you'll, you'll, in America. You'll be you'll be uh, shocked to hear, but not in people under thirty-five. You pull Americans eighteen to thirty-four. Who has a positive impression of capitalism? Uh, the numbers are low. More than less than fifty percent have a good impression of capitalism. Whereas the number of people who have a negative impression of socialism, it's not above fifty percent, but it's shrinking uh, every year. Uh, you know. It, Five years go by and socialism's numbers get five to ten percent better, and that's true across the aisle. Um, let's see, I think sixty. Let's see, if you ask um, registered Republicans or conservative-leaning Americans if they have a positive, impre- a negative impression of socialism, it used to be eighty-one percent said they did. Now it's just sixty-one percent. Are they putting the word "national" in front of that? <laughs> Is that what makes them into it? <laughs> I like one kind of socialism. <laughs> Let me show you my collections. Uh, I think, you know, so largely this is driven by... Uh, failure to understand what capitalism and socialism are? Part of it, but also just by obvious systemic failures of capitalism. Right, right. I mean, you see those every day. The, the, you know, these are young people who, you know, they've seen... I mean, the price of housing has gone up with inflation, but it's actually gone up two to three times the cost of the price, the the uh, value of inflation since 1970. Uh, I think inflation's up 600 something percent since 1970. House prices up like 1,200 percent, and maybe if you correct for square footage, it's not so different. But you know, this is cold comfort for somebody whose parents could afford a house with a working class job, and and they know they never will. Yeah, although I feel like that story is has become a kind of mythos that maybe statistics don't quite support. I mean, my mom in 1970 made $1,800 a year, $2,000 a year. So even— Maybe she should have worked harder. Well, she was working hard. Uh, uh, but the other thing— I'm telling you, I have the inflation numbers. Oh, and since 1970, yeah, right. it's 670% or so uh, inflation. House prices double that. So, no, you're everything. You're right. Everything is up, but— there are many sectors where things are specific. And it's it's really, I think, getting back to a situation of wealth and income inequality that's been true for most of human history. We, weirdly, were born in that post-war bubble when a series of societal decisions had actually created a prosperous middle class, prosperous and growing middle class. And we were under the illusion that that would continue and even thrive. And it turns out, no, the, the forces that tend to concentrate wealth um, reacted to some of those trends, strong unions and so forth, and that trend is reversing. It will be int- well. It has been reversing, but it'll be interesting to see as the boomers all die. Yeah, which I am really 
like rooting for. You're, you're hastening. I yeah. mean, you've got a, you've got all those, um, those the freshly buried earth in your in your cellar. <laughs> I do, and you know they're all going to move to the uh, the villages in port in uh, in Florida, mm-hmm. and then there's going to be, I think, a crash. Real estate, right in, real, estate? A real estate crash because they're all. Yeah. I mean, my neighborhood is what still seventy five percent people in there now late seventies and eighties. You can always tell because the gardens look really nice. The gardens are incredible. If you're in a neighborhood with really nice gardens, if the houses are big, it's um, awful young people hiring that out. Right. If the houses are small, it's nice old people. What's really curious? I was thinking about this the other day. This neighborhood was built in the post war era. Boom. And at the time. Every family here would have been a young family, uh, just a post-war, like late 20s mom and dad that then had five kids and raised them to adulthood. And a lot of those people never moved. So they're living in the houses they raised their kids. That's my, The house I bought was from two people in their 90s who moved here and built the house in 1952, raised a family. Well, those People still live here. It's the and, same people. And so driving around the neighborhood, what would have been a, like a vibrant neighborhood full of cool, young, you know, aviation engineers in this neighborhood. Pretty cool. Now is, yeah, it's like a retirement community. They still have their slide rules. And then a bunch of of young families in their late 30s, early 40s who work in tech or whatever it is that allows you to afford a, a home. I mean, that's what's happening in Seattle. Uh, it's it's already happening. The uh, all these areas where they got rid of the schools as the yeah as the Invariably. families aged out of childbearing age, suddenly they need to put all these schools back in because that generation has started to move out. They they're all moving to the villages. My neighborhood uh, the, that I lived in before in Rainier Valley, they closed the elementary school, and because there were no kids, mm-hmm. and two years later needed. <laughs> <laughs> to build an elementary school because when they'd close the early elementary school, apparently there were thousands of three-year-olds and two years later they, they were like, where did all these five-year-olds come that's, from? That's an interesting test case because government inefficiency is at the heart of our of our story today about Project Cybersyn and at the heart of lots of discussions of, uh, uh, you know, communism and socialism did not have a great 20th century. It was looking good. They mm-hmm. took over a ton of the world's land area. Their, mm-hmm. their ideas were very persuasive. Um, but then, uh, you know, it's it's shocking how many of these, John, it's shocking how many of these left-wing revolutionaries I'm shocked. become terrible autocrats once they have power. It's weird that it keeps happening. That is shocking. You'd think by the law of averages, eventually one of them would be like, and I want to continue to uh, distribute yes. my goods to the people. Yes. And yet... And now democracy. And, and, and yet what a long losing streak... Uh, What's interesting to me is online, you know, I have a I have an online community that I maintain as part of my own personal Patreon that you hate when I mention. Um, not hate, just glare. Every just time me. you mention it, uh, I think... A bear dies in the woods. I think you should have to funnel <laughs> some of your subscribers to the Omnibus <laughs> Patreon. I don't know how that would work. But I have a community there that often, you know, has, has lengthy discussions it's a it's a community of of fellow travelers but my as you just heard me at the beginning of this episode like i push back a little bit on the narrative that millennials have it harder than any generation prior and there's always somebody who's already pre-inclined to like me admire my thoughts enough to join my own online community who 
become so agitated by any narrative other than that these are the hardest times that humans have ever endured. And enough that it becomes, you know, it descends into a, like a screaming match, even in a walled garden. It's probably, you know, it, honestly, uh, it might be in some ways harder for this generation than any living generation, but it probably just makes them more in line with literally every generation in human history, you know, like, right. like we were the, it's funny that we were the one pampered generation that seemed like uh, middle-class prosperity might continue. And yet that was the time frame that had the most, that had the most terror of uh, international communist revolution. Well, yeah. And I mean, it, it, we, we were the one time that was safest from it. Maybe the cold war would not have been won in any other era if there hadn't been like a, a thriving uh, Western about, middle class. You're talking about the people right, right ahead of us. Because Generation X didn't seem like it at any point had some quick and easy, pro, you know, like progression into safe middle class. We, we were we were all losers, and there were no there no, were no jobs, no future. My my perception in hindsight is that a lot of that we were slacking off is because things were going to be fine. We were just going to oh. we were going to slide into those easy jobs our parents got. Oh, interesting. And uh, at least that was my perception. Yeah, yeah. I'll work in an office. And then, I see. and then working in an office is how you make a nice middle-class living and buy a, a house and two cars and take care of your two and a half kids. Right. Everybody I knew worked as a barista into their thirties because they were trying to be an artist. <laughs> and they, that, so I have a skewed perception, you have right? The, you have the bohemian Gen X and I have the suburban Gen X. Yeah. None of us felt like there were any jobs or any future. Of course we were, we, had we, our, we also had $200 a month rent. We, yeah, that's funny. We, yeah, yeah. we, we caught millennial fear early, I guess. Um, yeah. But, but we, what we didn't realize was that the fact that the cities were uninhabitable because they had been evacuated by white flight right. meant that they were these amazing playgrounds for us to just all have warehouse apartments and, um, and work. I mean, I made $900 a month until I was 33. Go explain to your 25-year-old self that there's going to be like six yoga studios oh, I, you, on that block. No one would have believed it. <laughs> like, hey, you, guess what? This apartment that you're renting right now and that you're offended costs $700 a month. Guess what's going to cost when you're 45? I mean, the appeal of, I think to young people, the appeal of these democratic socialist movements is, you know, the idea that, well, of course, they'll be democratic. Sure, you know, sure. We'll, we'll return some of the means of production, but this time... Oh yeah. This time we're going to do it with um, elections, and of course it won't descend into aut autocracy as before. No, no, no. And uh, you know, everybody wants to give to the common, the the common benefit of all, right? And Especially the rich. They they need to be encouraged. They need to be educated, right? To realize that seventy five percent income taxes should be the baseline. And, and if go not, from and if not, we will. Put them against the wall. They need what, to understand that. What was the top income tax rate in the 50s and 60s? I mean, the thing is, even when on paper it was 90, nobody was paying over 50. But I think for a lot of people in that range, I think a lot of very wealthy people were effectively paying 50% tax. And you had a more, you know, robust country with uh, dreams, you know, right. a society with dreams and mobility. Right. So, yeah, well, I think a lot of people are just saying, I want that robust European-style social set of social programs back. Right. Um, but of course, you know, the other, in addition to the fact that a lot of these idealistic left-wing movements have turned into the worst uh, dictatorships of the 20th century, there's also the fact that we are now skeptical of their 
efficiency. We oldsters are. Well, I mean, even young people know that, you know, Mao and Stalin killed millions of people. It's just they'll tell you, yeah, they killed half as many people as climate change will kill in, in the next decade. And the, actually, those numbers are probably correct. So Wait, is climate change in the next decade going to kill uh, 100 the, million the esti- people? The estimate is 100 million people by 2030. Um, That's only eight years from now. I'm telling you. It's, Have any of those people started to die, or are the 100 million people going to start now and die between now and eight years? I don't years know from if now. you're following Pakistan being underwater, the increasing prevalence of hurricanes and heat domes on the but, American but coast. But 100 million people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. It would take a lot of crop failures and droughts, and that's, I think, maybe the prediction. I mean, this is the problem with predictions, right? Because in the 70s, the famines that were predicted to sweep mm-hmm. the world that were going to, again, kill hundreds of millions of people didn't come to pass. And for a variety of reasons. A L- lot of it techno- technological-based. Technology. That's hopeful. That's right. That's hopeful for preventing these hundred million deaths. And then the hole in the ozone layer was predicted to, again, kill tens of millions of people and make, in some ways, in some predictions, make the world uninhabitable. Mm-hmm. Also, we eliminated c- c- FCs. What were they? Yep. And, um, uh, yeah, chlorofluorocarbons. Correct. And uh, then that turned out to not really kill anybody either. They, they boy who cry wolf to you. You think, you think no disaster can happen because those didn't. Well, no, but I, but feel, right. I feel like if you, go, if you go into a situation presuming this is the Enron problem, right? Enron started to uh, decide what their profits were going to be what they surely were going to be, and then putting those profits onto the books at the time the contract was signed rather than at the time the money actually came in. That's the problem with predicting and then acting as though those predictions had already happened. Right. hundred million dead. Mm-hmm. Let's just, let's, for futurelings listening, only you will know if a hundred million people died of climate change result. Uh, by the end of the 2020s. By, the, by, tw- by 2030. Let's just put a fork in that. I hope you and I are still alive and not killed by a blood wave. Well, I mean, honestly, like, we're the people who are going to be insulated from a lot of this. But, you know, 100 million people, it's like two-thirds of Bangladesh. Right. It's a lot of people, but, like, you know, the parts of the world that are most affected by climate change are also incredibly densely populated. populated. Um, But, yeah, like, let's, you know, let's not, uh, you know, you can't avert your eyes from the fact that Mao's great leap forward. We discussed this in what the backyard copper smelting. We Here, talked about it quite a bit. We talk, you know, we we talk about forty-five million Chinese people dying all the time. We're we're basically Tucker Carlson. I don't want to be the guy on Omnibus that's uh, getting a lot of letters from angry millennials that think I'm a climate change denier because, of course, I'm not. Well, I don't want to be on the guy on Omnibus where everybody thinks I'm in favor of tanks rolling into Prague. Has either. there ever been a uh, uh, socialist slash communist revolution that didn't result in an autocracy has there been an is there an example of a successful one well let's discuss the case of a democratically elected marxist government yes elected with the will of the people i like it uh in the country of chile in 1970 oh boy <laughs> well you don't want that one ends with the cia uh, no that's the problem god the we, cia we, we had time. we had one test case <laughs> that we could have we could have checked out you had one job <laughs> they got to keep the street going they've got to oh. prove that no uh that no marxist revolution works i mean in this case this was an unusual you know you might think of 1970s south america as a seething hotbed of, of castro-like 
revolutionaries. But in fact, back then it was all right wing dictatorships. Then as now. Pretty much up and down. Like Cuba was kind of Allende's only friend. Mexico was open to the idea. They had a they had a left leaning government. Um, but if you're an American banana or sugar company, you know what you would love to have running oh, Colombia yeah. or Brazil? Sure. A nice right wing strongman. What was happening at the time in um what was happening in Venezuela at the time? We think of Venezuela as having been, uh, you know, a, what was, was that initially a Marxist revolution that became an autocracy, or was it? All, You're talking aut- about Chavez-style yeah, populism. W- yeah, that was left-wing. But was it always meant as a left, but not Marxist, but just sort of left-wingy? Uh, for much of the seventies, I mean, in the late seventies, Venezuela was run by CAP. Carlos Andres Perez Rodriguez. I'm now, um, <laughs> I'm reading his resume right now. I could not have gone in telling you this. Well, the thing about Venezuela in the 70s is they had all the money. The oil money. They had all that oil money. So they were like the shining star of Latin America, and they had low income inequality. They took in refugees. It kind of blunted a lot of the political turmoil elsewhere. They were run by a center-left social democratic party, uh, Acción Democrática, for most of the 70s, I think. So, they were so they a failed could, state until the until the oil money dried up. They could fulfill some of the socialist promise because they you didn't have to. It. Yeah, they could pay. And that's essential to the Allende story too. Um, you know, he was elected in 1970 with a very starry-eyed and an explicitly socialist uh, platform. He'd been an unsuccessful political candidate for many years, kind of a Bernie Sanders type of of 1960s era Chile. Um, swept to power at a time when, and there was still about a year of good times left when Chile's major export. Copper was in high demand. International copper prices had spiked, and Chile was living high on the hog as a result. Um, and it wasn't until what's now called the Nixon shock of 1971, uh, like Nixon removing price controls from a bunch of commodities. And this is the same time uh, we finally went off the gold standard. Yeah. Um, the international price of copper just plummeted, and that's the kind of thing, not— you know, not domestic popularity or actual policy success that can that can doom a government. It's the economy, stupid. Uh, as Allende learned, you know, he was replaced by our our not democratically democratically elected guy, a military strongman named uh, Pinochet, the uh, the hero of almost every story of Latin America. Pinochet, uh, yeah, everyone, the great guy. Everyone loves Augusto. <laughs> um, but, Classic banana republic guy. But you know the story we you know this this the stories we tell about twentieth century attempts at Marxist Leninist collective collectivization um, that again always as we said lead to famines and stuff. Um, this is late enough that Allende is aware of this. Allende is aware of uh, the dangers of Marxist Leninism, so he does want to nationalize a lot of these Chilean industries, but he wants to be the forward thinking guy. Thank God. You know, we've already seen, you know, Mao and Stalin and Khrushchev flounder. So this is going to be a hopeful, this is a Western hemisphere, you know, uh, socialism for tomorrow. And maybe that can start to reverse the trend of these U.S.-backed right-wing strongmen. Now, at this point, 1970, have the, because Europe throughout the mid-20th mid century experimented with 
democratic parliamentary socialism. Let's see, not France yet, right? De Gaulle's still a, a right, uh, a, a conservative until until guy. yeah, the mid seventies. But like Mitterrand but, doesn't Mitterrand. I think it's the first socialist president of France, and that's around nineteen eighty. But there there were socialist parties. Yeah, successful active, mainstream ones. Yeah, in Scandinavia and in Britain. Um, you know, and all these places had un, you know uncontroversially uh, uncontroversially had a lot more robust social infrastructure than than you know the United States today. Right. I mean, it was a it was a hard time. It was a it was not yeah. you know it wasn't a flourishing time, but for for a variety of reasons. But still, the, the, these were active parties, and those ideas were being. Um, they were in the Overton applied. window in, yeah. a, in a way. Maybe they wouldn't have. I mean, you can say that you know today. LBJ's Great Society, or even a lot of like Nixon era initiatives, would sure. not be in the Overton window for the U.S. No, but but definitely socialist, although not probably called that at the time. It's so funny that this that all the socialists that we talk about now, all the theorists, they were all French, and they were all writing <laughs> it about this exact time. Right. Since you've brought us to like the bleak Britain of the fifties, let's meet a man named Stafford Beer. B E R. Uh, he was born Anthony Stafford Beer, but at some point he thought it would be cooler to sound like a microbrewery or, sure. a, or a, like an Irish. Uh, I love Stafford Beer. Stafford Beer. And not only did he change his name to Stafford, he made his brother, Ian, whose middle name was also Stafford, sign a document promising that he would not go by his middle name Stafford, thus relinquishing it to the former Anthony Beer. Could he keep, could he keep Stafford as his middle name? Yeah, I think yeah, okay. he's, maybe he can't write it on checks. I wonder if Stafford checks with a Q. put Anthony in the middle, so he was Stafford Anthony Beer. He was Stafford Beer from then on, and he is one of the brightest men of his time. Um, in 1956, he has a job at United Steel, and he starts a ground—United Steel being a, a British steel conglomerate— and he starts a groundbreaking um, corporate initiative there— United Steel will have its own cybernetics department hmm. at a time when not only did big companies not have cybernetics departments, at a time when maybe a lot of academics couldn't tell you what cybernetics was. The word had just been coined in the 40s. And what is cybernetics? So today, because cybernetics, the term has been absorbed into, the, you know, the prefix has become cyber, meaning all things digital and virtual. And, you know, it, cybernetic organisms are now cyborgs. We tend to associate it with robotics and 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 digital life. Cyberdyne. Uh, Cyberdyne Systems, yeah. you know, obviously uh, created Skynet. Uh, we uh, so we lose sight of the fact that cybernetics, as an academic term, is something much broader and more conceptual. You know, it, strictly speaking, it's the study of any system that might have circular processes hmm. that might have. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It might have any kind of feedback loop. Okay. That's cybernetics, and the word comes from the, the Greek root. You know, kyber uh, is their word for steering. It's a helmsman. And it's a metaphor that I think Plato uses in the Republic of a, of a sailor who, in steering the ship, is constantly making a bunch of small adjustments based on the wind and the waves and the other small adjustments he's previously made to the tiller and the sail. Uh, and Plato, I think— And ends up sailing in circles? <laughs> no, like you, oh. that in fact you need to do— I see. You need to make these small adjustments or the system doesn't work because steering a ship is a very complicated system. Yeah. Uh, I believe uh, when Plato mentions this term in the Republic, he's actually already applying it to social systems, to saying that in a broader sense, you know, government, you know, politics needs to have that kind of a helmsman studying those circular processes and the communications that drive them. Now that you're talking about social systems, you're also talking about 
communications between people and groups, right. uh, and and therefore you know steering the ship right. And so when mathematician Norbert Wiener coined. I don't know if it's Wiener or Weiner. I think maybe Wiener. I like Norbert Wiener. Norbert Wiener. Let's have let's just enshrine that into the Revenge of the, the Nerds canon. character Norbert <laughs> Wiener. When he coined the word cybernetics in the 1940s, he was starting to apply it the way um, the way these concepts of feedback had started to come into play in engineering. You know, early steam engines, early electric circuits. They were well aware that you needed certain kinds of governors. Mm-hmm. That there were mechanical things that would uh, that would react to how the system was acting. And you know, amplify or dampen accordingly. Um, so there's this mechanical angle that interests these new generation of, of, of technicians and mathematicians and futurists in the 20th century, uh, because they realize that um, you know now that we're not dealing with steam engines, now that we're dealing with computers, this communication is much faster. It's smaller. It's bigger. You know, more data, more information, and that's not just true on the micro scale of designing a vacuum tube computer. It's also true in terms of a business, mm-hmm. you know, different, you know, the, the, as we see today, you know, organ, they were seeing, you know, the problem that plagues us today, organizations getting so complicated that, um, the information is not well distributed, that the people who know the things you need to know might be far away in the organization. How do you get, you know, how do you get them in the same room? Do they have to be in the same room? Steering committees. I mean, the word steering, you know, comes from the Keeps same it. idea as the, right. the Greek Kyber. Um, so suddenly, you know, if you're an engineer or an information theorist, a computer scientist, you're interested in these ideas. If you're a business guru, you're interested in these ideas. If you're in politics, cybernetics is kind of a Buckminster Fuller style catchphrase of tomorrow. And Stafford Beer is one of the earliest to bring it into British manufacturing and business. Mm -hmm. He actually installs a computer at... United States, United Steel, and says this is purely a cybernetic computer. This is for monitoring all the different information that our company needs to know and telling us management-wise, um, you know, and maybe to some degrees automating what what corrections we need to make. So this is this became then very fashionable in business theory, right? This sort of um, well, yes, yeah, cybernetic management. Yeah, he writes a book called Brain of the Firm that um, eventually Brian Eno and David Bowie will, you know, it even gets into artistic circles. David Byrne will still talk lovingly of of Stafford Beer's work. And he becomes a very hot management guru because, as you say, this becomes a, a business buzzword yeah. of the time. Your organization needs to embrace the future, and the future is cybernetics. Right. Understand- Six Sigma. <laughs> right. It's, it's the Six Sigma of its time. And it's really all about a problem that, you know, we've— we still struggle with today, but we've largely solved digitally. Getting, you know, as the informa- as the just the bulk of data balloons, how do you get the right numbers to the right people or systems, machines, in a timely manner? Now these interfaces are often partly human, partly computer, and that's why cybernetics comes to mean robotic or digital or whatever. Is that how AI is going to kill us? Because I keep hearing that even well before 100 million people die of uh, Bangladeshi typhoons that we're all going to die because AI cyberdynes us to death. Yeah, the paperclip problem, right? Yeah. The the machines will they'll become like the broomsticks and the sorcerer's apprentice and go bonkers. Uh, you know, I was, I was actually in a I was on a pretty long car ride with a UW AI genius emeritus, 
And uh, the people in the field just kind of poo-poo all that thinking. And they really, they blame Hollywood, you know? Like, if we didn't have all these stories about computers running amok, people would not hear about an AI advance and be like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, like, the the we've caused this gloominess. And he actually blames Judeo-Christian, like, I'm not supposed to say Judeo, but he blames the Bible. Of course. Like, he says, you know, like, we're the culture that has a creation myth where the creation rises up and rebels against the creator. Whether it's Lucifer in Paradise Lost or it's Adam and Eve in Genesis, we believe that the creation, we believe in this Frankenstein paradigm. That's our founding myth. So as a result, we just think all the robots are going to do that. We think the Roomba is going to get an axe. Robot he, Jesus. He's like, in, well, he, what he says is in Japan, their idea of, a, of God is very different. God is Kami, you know, thousands of nature spirits kind of benevolently doing their own thing and representing different aspects of the universe. And so the Japanese love little quirky mascots and robots going about their automated lives, and they're not not worried about it. They're not apocalypse. threatened by that because we we just need to be we need to have a Shintoist vibe toward our overlords. Uh-huh. I don't I, know, do I you, for one support my my uh, Shinto my Totoro yeah, uh, my Totoro octopus. robot overlords. Um. So yeah, I mean, but yeah, I think all these these fears of mach- systems run amok, like that wasn't even a possibility. This is the beginning of AI, really, is, is Norbert Wiener saying we need complex systems because that implies they're going to do things like thinking for you. Right. And this was, the, this was part of the dead hand, uh, like Cold War, if we computerize NORAD, it will always be a, um, like a, we'll always be able to maintain deterrence because even if we die, our machines will fire the missile. Mutually assured destruction. Yeah. And, uh, but Stafford beer kind of soon bores of uh, being a management guru, as I assume any good hearted person would. Sure. He's, uh, he's got like progressive, he's got left-wing sympathies. He's interested in what's going around the world. He likes to travel. Uh, and at some point in the night, he's a, he becomes a consultant. Um, despite being, Left wing, by the way, he has an enormous house in Surrey with a remote controlled waterfall in the dining room. You'll find this is also true of the leaders yeah, of most left wing revolutions. Of many left wing revolutions, yeah. <laughs> Rolls Royce, uh, but he's a nerdy one. So, like his his um, million dollar mosaics above the fireplace all have the Fibonacci sequence. Oh God, uh, embedded in them. I guess at the, the time, fir- at the time that was that a, was new. It wasn't a cliche. Yet. <laughs> I know, isn't that funny? Like he's the first Steve Jobs weirdo, but he, you know his house is in. Um, West Byfleet, Surrey. Does he wear the same black turtleneck every day? He's a big Orson Welles type. Oh, yeah. And this, and this um, serves him very well as he, uh, as he internationalizes his business. He gets involved in Chilean, a Chilean railway deal in the 1960s, and that brings his writings and his business theories um, to the uh, attention of some of Chile's young, best and brightest. A railway seems like the exact kind of closed system that could really benefit from this theory. Yeah. That's not going to have knock-on effects because it's a railway. The, yeah, the trains, the, cannot, the trains cannot go out of control and plow through a, a housing project. Right. Or if they do, yeah, they're going to go through one train station. Right. They can tip over. That's about all they can yeah. do. So that's you're saying that's the most amount of power you would like a— uh, a left-wing cyberneticist to have. Well, no, but I, every time I get into any kind of discussion with uh, with a um, anarchist or a or a left-wing, you know, socialist that's advocating for a revolution, mm-hmm. I go, absolutely, these systems, all the examples you're using, are w- would 100 percent work if you had a fairly 
small and contained community of like-minded people. It's only when you try to expand that system to encompass people that disagree with it that will actively fight against it. But interestingly, it's always the fascists that are trying to lure you in by saying, we'll make the trains run on time. Yeah, although, <laughs> have you heard my story about that? That uh, that it turned out, I uh, uh, do you know you know Wesley Stace, the, the who novelist? records under John Wesley Harding. I, I only know I know his books, but not his music. Yeah, as a as a novelist, he he uses his real name Wesley Stace, and his father is a is a professor, a Cambridge professor who has taught in Italy for decades. And he was talking to his father one day, and he made some reference to Mussolini and the trains running on time, and. His father said, you know that in Italy at the time, that was an ironic statement. That's funny. That Italians said, well, at least he, at least the trains run on time. And it was deeply ironic because also the trains didn't run on time. <laughs> and uh, he was like, just, just think for a second about Mussolini and the way he ran that country. Do you think the trains ran on time? Think about Italy now. It's a good warning about the uh, dangers of irony, which is that 100 years people will just remember the joke, but they won't remember that it was a joke. That's the thing. I got kicked off of Twitter the first time <laughs> because uh, irony had changed generations. The uh, Yeah, I've, I've, there's, I think there's actually been academic work on this, and the trains were later yeah. under Mussolini. Yeah. So that, th it was always ironic. That's where you want to put your, your smart social democrats, put them in charge of something like a railway where they can't really break too much. Yeah, all they have to do is have the trains run on time. You know the Ukrainian railways have managed to maintain a incredible on-time percentage throughout the war because they've got they've got people using uh using total math my heart swells with pride for those on-time ukrainian trains i'm going to change my twitter avatar to an on-time ukrainian train i think that has like a thomas the tank engine face but yeah but yellow and blue, yellow stripes. And blue. yeah exactly <laughs> wait thomas is yellow and blue right the uh so so uh, unaccountably stafford beer now has this following in chile and in particular, in 1970, a young engineering student named uh, Fernando Flores, who has been a big beer disciple. I mean, a lot of engineering students are beer disciples, but he's a Stafford beer disciple. And uh, when Allende is elected, um, and suddenly there's a democratically elected Marxist in the West saying, you know, we can uh, give the means of production back to the people in a peaceful and forward-thinking way, um, Flores becomes one of his finance ministers— and uh, immediately brings beer to the attention of the government. Is he like a 24-year-old? Yeah, he's like yeah. a kid. Yeah. Uh, and he's, um, I mean, to this, I think he's still like a, a like a management guru today, you know. 50, and he's 59 50 years, years old. Later. Exactly. <laughs> and what, he, what these young, hopeful, um, idealistic Allendeists find is they've inherited this awful, broken-down, you know, in the manufacturing, you know, he's got this unwieldy network of factories and mines, and nobody knows who's producing anything. Um, and he doesn't, but he's, he's wary of, obviously, of Soviet-style centralization. He's like, what's the right way to do this? For the, you know, it's the beginning of a new decade, which always numerically fools people. You know, it probably gets Reagan elected, honestly. The, yeah, the, year, right. the year ended with a zero, like, hey, baby. This it's is time. This is year zero for an optimistic new movement. So, so Flores is, is conscious of the, of... Not wanting to follow a, uh, yes. a Maoist path. Yeah, he's like, we know what happens with centralization. Like, millions of peasants die. Like, this, we know this doesn't work. We're going to do smart Marxism, or smarxism, as yeah, I call smarxism. it. And in that case, when you've got this rusty network of 
factories and mines and, and uh, government offices that can't talk to each other, who are you going to call? He calls Stafford Beer. Oh, thank goodness. Thinking, hey. Let's get him engaged. You know, he's read this guy's book. He's like, maybe the man, maybe one of his, um, you know, he'll have a partner, an employee he can send here and consult. And is very surprised when Beer himself steps off a plane, delighted to, to be in on the ground floor of a, of a new market. Now, Beer is an idea is an idealist and a theorist, but is he here driven by a profit motive? He asks for $500 a day from the Chilean government, which is much. It's a huge break. You know, it's a huge cut of his usual fee, but really enough to raise eyebrows in this new workers paradise. Sure. Um, He also wants to be well supplied with uh, chocolate, wine, and cigars. Yes. Things of which I was looking into this. I mean, obviously uh, Castro loved his cigars. You can be a good, you can be a good socialist revolutionary and still want your, box of cigars everybody in cuba loves a cigar apparently the the worst chocoholics are napoleon and saddam hussein sure so, and me so we can argue about how leftist uh, those guys were and you well the goal of course is in a in a socialist paradise that everyone gets chocolate wine and cigars right not that not that uh, we eliminate chocolate wine and cigars that's how they fail so there is a uh yeah, so in this new hopeful moment, sure, we'll, we, we can stock we'll this guy with, with, with the abundance of the uh, of the revolution because he's going to tell us how to do this, and it's he becomes um, like a, a visible, um, like a real symbol, like a, a public symbol in Chile. A folk singer writes a song called "Litany for a Computer and a Baby About to Be Born." Uh-huh. Like they're actually writing revolutionary workers' folk songs about. This big kind of heroic Orson Welles, Santa Claus-like figure, larger-than-life figure, who's going to come save us with his computer know-how. Can you tell us the title of that song in Spanish? <laughs> Let's see. I don't have it in front of me. It would be, uh, what did I even say it was? Litany for a computer and a baby? Yeah, something, 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 something. <laughs> La litania por un ordenador y un bebé. Para nacerse. Yeah, 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 see, I like I that. I don't know. I'd listen to that. It song. must, maybe, it must trip off the tongue a little better. Please, if you uh, are, we have Chilean listeners. Yeah, we have, for sure we do. The guy that sent us all the stuff when we did the the protest dogs show. Please uh, tell us uh, really how to translate your Chilean cybernetic folk songs. Or here we'll put a challenge to Mark Miles. Find the song and play a little snippet of it. <laughs> so, um, how do you do this without centralizing? Now. Currently, you know, Chile is like a famously, what do you want to say? It's tall. It's, it's a, long and thin. It's skinny. Unlike Mr. Beer, it's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, long Maybe and Maybe that's why the Chileans were so fascinated. We come from a narrow country, and uh, this uh, man, he is, uh, how you say, wide, yes? Is he also, like, wearing a white linen suit? Is he doing the whole thing? The, the, the big I'm guy? totally imagining him like Orson Welles on Carson. Yeah, right. So probably not true. But yeah, I'm imagining doing close-up magic in a sweater, a cable knit sweater of some kind. Um, so they've got this problem you know, in this long country where information takes a long time to get, you know, and this is everything from how much is this mine producing? How much does this factory need? How late is this good delivery going to be? What's absenteeism like in this province? It takes six months to collect all this data. And this is a problem in... Uh, you know, non-socialist as well as socialist democracies, much less autocracies. Is Chile at the time uh, suffering from rampant corruption, or is it not as not especially corrupt? Like Argentina, you know, famously, a lot of 
uh, systemic corruption? That's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of that, especially at the at the local level. But it, but it, but, but not to the that, point that people are lying about production figures or or skimming massive quantities of right. Yeah, the problem doesn't seem to be deception so much as it is just slow trickle of information upward through. It, it appears to be bureaucracy, a, yeah. very, a very capitalist problem. But uh, and uh, and when asked how he's going to fix this, Stafford Beer has no idea because I think the country of Chile has like two computers, right? Um, and he can't say, well, the first thing we do is build a, a like a functioning telephone system. What they do find in a warehouse uh, somewhere outside Santiago is 500 telex machines oh. that the previous administration had ordered but never but put had, in, but had never installed. So they think, well, you know, we've got this communication blackout problem we've got you know we've got a computer uh, information deficit and a telex problem a telex machine surplus let's kill two birds with one stone so beer immediately proposes you know chile being a long narrow country what you need is a backbone you need you know it's it's great for transit i assume and also for information transit well it's very hilly country too that's true but it doesn't Brawl, you know, a single information backbone would right. work very well. The you know, system of raisin, ravens, if mm-hmm. you're in, if you're in Westeros, right, or if you're in Chile, uh, telex machines. You so, could you could use a uh, uh, big mountaintop beacons like in the Lord of the Rings. So these telex and and so much of cybernetics is what happens on paper. You know, he draws up this idea where there's he's got this thing called the viable system model where problems that can be solved at one level are solved. Those that can't bubble up to the next level. Okay. So, so you've got like he he draws you know four increasingly large circles um, of problem solving and says this is how my model would solve this. Let's give every office a telex machine, uh, and every day, um, basically, he invents the internet without computers. A telex machine is a typewriter that then imagine will, a fax machine that's not yet a fax machine. Yeah, it will type uh, a message from a from input, which was a typewriter on the other end. Thank you. I should, yeah, I should explain to uh, even current listeners who will yeah. not know what a telex machine is. <laughs> right. The, you so know, it sounds like a typewriter it when even, a message comes. Yeah, it even kind of predated the, the before the fax. It was just before, it was the whole 20th century pre-fax. If your office in uh, uh, Houston needed to get some reports to your office in Chicago, you would probably send them a telex. When I say all, I, I just mean post-war Post-war right. two facts. Right, because you need an information global, right. a global information network. You right. know, you, it doesn't work with. Um, and uh, so this is how it would work, that um, at 5 p.m. every day, every node on this proto-internet, a factory, a mine, a, a distribution center, would send its numbers to uh, the government. It would send it to Santiago, in fact, where one of the two computers uh, available to the government has been allowed for Stafford Beer to have some time to collate this into a daily report, which would then be placed on the desk of President Allende. I like this very much. So um, our new hopeful Marxist utopia is not going to kill 5 million Ukrainians because... Um, All we're trying to do is is square the, the steel coming out of the steel factory with the demand for steel... It re- up, up the chain. It pleases my anal retentive heart. It and, does me too. And so, and tra- you know, t- small trends, you know, an absentee problem at this factory or late deliveries in this province can be solved locally. The ones that persist or agglomerate will get passed up the chain. And if that node can't handle them, they'll get passed up. And eventually the important stuff and all the important metrics wind up on the president's desk every day at 5 p.m. And 
it's kind of funny. A series of futuristic control rooms are built in Santiago to process all this data. Um, oh, I hope the walls were shiny white walls with round edge doorways. If you can't actually produce the internet, you at least want the vibe of science fiction. Yeah. An Ulm school of design, a, you know, a legendary German modernist designer is brought in to oh, consult on, on what the room should look like. Oh, nice. So the control rooms are these hexagonal, they look like the bridge on Star Trek, yes. basically. Hexagonal rooms with every wall has a different um, set of readouts, uh, a chalkboard or whatever. It's also 1970, so they're all wood paneled. So it's a yes. beautiful retro internet look. Then a, ser- a, a, a circle of Star Trek-style tulip chairs sits in the middle. Um, the idea eventually is for all of them to have controls on the armrest, like Captain Kirk did, as well as, of course, an armchair and a cup holder for your for your shot of whatever a South American aperitif you're enjoying at 5 p.m. Sure, every day. the whole concept of all that architecture was that it was that it be that that, that was what the utility looked like. Right. We just put swivel chairs in our place on Lopez because we want to be able to turn to look at, out the window. And they work. And that's what they wanted. They want yeah. swivel chairs that will turn around your hexagonal room so you can see copper prices on this wall. But then if you look three walls over, you can see the blackboard where somebody's, um, you know, somebody's showing you how the production chain works in Antofagasta. Now, complete this picture for me. Please, please, please. Let them be upholstered in orange and let the carpet be brown. <laughs> there is a lot of brown in the room. I think there is orange even. Yeah. Like uh, the uh, it's got it's got to be white plastic, orange fabric, and brown carpet. That's because that's how I'm decorating my house. Uh, it's exactly what you would want it to be. Right down to the ashtrays and the and the whiskey glass mm-hmm. on every chair, right next to the the keypad. Now the problem is they don't have the real internet yet. This again, this being 1970, we should explain to the distant future actual microprocessors and digital life is still decades and decades away. My mom worked in computers at this time Mm -hmm. and they used two inch wide electromagnetic tape on giant machines and they could do pretty complicated calculations, but it's still vacuum tubes downstairs producing the report. Um, And so what that means is when, so that means the, the, the readouts they get print, the screens are not actually, uh, CRTs. The screens are actually uh, an office of gifted women, like I'm imagining the Disney Inc. and Paint Girls, are every day producing these beautiful mid-century PowerPoint slides, summarizing the day's charts and graphs and data. And then the slide shows up on a screen. And the slide shows up on a screen as if it's a TV. Oh. And the bu- the buttons you're pressing on your arm pad, on, you know, on your chair, are actually you know running through mechanical relays in the floor and advancing a slide projector. Do you remember in the old SeaTac airport, the... Uh the light show room. I don't know. Where was it? There was a, well, you know, they've transformed that airport so much. There's no place in it that resembles what it used to be at all. It wasn't out in one of the satellites. It was no central in the central core of the airport pre security. Yeah. And I don't know, even know if there was security then in the same way, Right. but there was a, a very big dark room with glass walls that had futuristic, couches and chairs and a, an entire wall of light bulbs and it was very dark in there and then in the center of the room there was a tower that had a grid of buttons that was probably 20 buttons tall by 20 buttons wide and on the wall of light bulbs there was a 
the light bulbs lit up in patterns in a kind of slow moving artistic, like uh, balls and waves moving around. And then the, obviously the message communicated by this tall tower was that by standing at the tower and pushing the buttons, you could control somehow the art, which I can attest as a child, having pushed every button on that thing 1,000 times, it had made no difference to what was happening. Oh, is that right? As far as anybody, dumb, any of dumb, us could tell. Dummy keypad. But the place was always full of travelers, you know, leaning back in these, in these like... Uh, Pan Am chairs. Yeah, futuristic uh, tulip chairs, all just like resting their eyes and like cold stone tripping on this light wall. And it was smoked glass walls. It seems very 20th century Seattle, all that kind of uh, century 21, uh, 62 World's Fair kind of. It was the future. And at some point, you know, there used to be like big, like, um, like modern art sculptures all throughout SeaTac Airport. All of it's gone and it all looks like a Starbucks now, but. It's a Pacific marketplace, John. It's a Pacific marketplace. They got rid of Ivers and put in a different less Seattle-y fish place that had, had, had jumped through all their, um, hoops of, uh, I think it actually turned out to be like, they got enough points by having a woman CEO. Oh actually. yeah. Well, the sub pop store, highly recommended to everybody. Still there. Only record store in America that opens at 6am. I think the, uh, and Allende, by the way, former physician, you know, man of science and, and very interested in these, uh, conceptual cybernetic ideas because, you know, these are mirrored in how, how homeostasis works in the body. He's interested in the biological undercurrent, much less the sociopolitical or technological ones of cybernetics. So he is very into this. Um, and it's sold to the Chilean people as part of the revolution. Oh, sure. Like this is, this is participatory, you know, like you and the, the president are all contributing to this great chain of information. And in fact, and, and, and some, I think in some ways that's to counteract the surveillance angle yeah. of having this massive chain of information, which is oh, Big sure. Brother is on the factory floor. But really, I think in, in a lot, there was some skepticism about that and it, it, it didn't help. But it did in many factories, like the shop floor did have a little control room built that was kind of like their factory level operation center where they would mirror what was happening in Santiago, but at their level. How many of these, like, uh, these hexagonal rooms, wood-paneled rooms with tulip chairs in it were built? There were only two of the rooms, and the final one, the one for reasons we will, you can probably guess, was never built in the presidential palace. Mm. The ultimate fancy Star Trek bridge was going to be built in the presidential palace. Two temporary hexagonal rooms with, again, tulip chairs and the nice paneling and shag carpeting are, are operating in, in downtown, you know, temporary downtown office space in Santiago. Um, and so this kind of, uh, it's kind of working. I mean, there are some hassles getting numbers, you know, people don't, you know, the resistance to sharing data with, with your, with your superiors is the thing that doomed everybody's five-year plans and every great leap forward. Right. But this more collaborative, uh, cybernetically powered one seems to possibly have legs. Um, and in fact, in October 1972, Allende faced his greatest challenge, which was like a nationwide strike. A lot of I think, truck drivers and conservative small businesses were trying to um, you know, bring down his administration, so they stage a strike. And suddenly these hexagonal ops rooms are being manned day and night. This is no longer just the thing that produces a, an eccentric report. Um, this is now how we're going to beat the strike. 
with, you know, government ministers around the clock sleeping in their tulip chairs and being like, okay, so we don't, we're not, we're not going to have enough gasoline at this plant to keep it running. Where, you know, where are the trucks still running? You know, it's where the data actually works. Wow. And it gets, if we're, you know, if we're cheering for the Marxist democracy here, it gets Allende through the strike. Eventually, you know, would it have worked? Eventually, it's kind of doomed by scale and success. So maybe this is not something that would have scaled even in Chile. Like the original core of San- Stafford Beer disciples and Stafford Beer himself coming and going from his Surrey mansion um, are doing a great job. But as they have to hire, increasingly, this government initiative becomes a bureaucracy where not everybody is a true believer, not everybody cares, not everybody agrees with the initial um, true believers. Are they um, trying to use the use that efficiency then to upgrade the the factories and the systems? It seems like it it would uh, have a cascading effect if at every turn they made the systems better and more efficient. Well, that's how cybernetics is supposed to work. You know, these governors are supposed to kick in, and you're supposed to see, aha, we can solve this problem before it happens. But there were inefficiencies where um, you know because they're doing this without the internet. Be- you know, mm-hmm. that uh, a factory would get told, hey, guess what? We've just seen what you need to do. You need to get some of your supplies over to this branch. And they'll say, yeah, actually, we did that a couple of weeks uh-huh. ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, uh, it turns out that they could not solve all the the Soviet-era collectivization problems. Um, one problem is that Stafford Beer kind of got bored with it. He's, he's a wealthy dilettante right. with a waterfall in his dining room, and he seeks... Uh, New Horizons. He starts. He decides that it would be, it's very important that he get really involved in art and uh, folk music, right? That, that supports the Allende government. Um, he decides maybe that Chile needs some more foreign currency to keep it afloat, and therefore um, he needs to start an anchovy fishing operation. Again, this is not what you want one of the world's leading cyberneticists spending his time on. No, also driven by a profit motive primarily, right? He's not fishing for anchovies. I kind of wonder for the for the betterment of all. He's like, as long as you don't get me my chocolate and wine and cigars today, I'm, and five hundred dollars a day, I'm taking it in anchovies. How uh, many anchovies do you think that would be? I don't know what the anchovy to cigar ratio is. And what were the price of anchovies in 1972? <laughs> I'm just going to put that in the price. Hey, Chat GPT of anchovies in 1972. I think they didn't cost extra at Pizza Hut. Um. Well, it right away, uh, the first article from the New York Times talks about an anchovy fishing crisis in Peru. What era? 1972. Well, hey, that's exactly when we're talking about. In 1972, there was a worldwide shortage of anchovies. This all makes sense. Wow. Like, so basically, Stafford Beer read, read one article in The Economist uh-huh. and rushes to his ministry superiors and says, I've got one word for you, Ben. Anchovies. Anchovies. Uh, the other thing is he's got a teenage son back home in Surrey who's a bit of a radio ch- shack weirdo. Um, his son has invented a kind of electronic um, meter yeah. that, that he thinks can be used for real-time polling. Like, we could have one of these in every community center. Maybe we could have one in every home. And then think what a think what a, a Marxist paradise, this what a socialist worker's paradise this will be when all the people can immediately tell us what they think of, the, of Allende's new policy or speech or whatever. Did it help you um, go clear? <laughs> yeah, these e-meters, electric meters or e-meters. Um, now, none of these ever actually made it oh. to Chile, but um, this becomes Stafford Beer's 
new, uh, you know, cause he's bored with the old thing. Yeah. We sure. got the telex machines are running. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the copper mines are doing better. I don't know. But then he's got a little nepotism make work project for his son. His son, where, appear, his son appears to be the driver here. His son appears oh. to be the nerd. Who's like, Hey dad, Hey dad, what if cybernetics, but we'll do these algodonic poles or whatever he calls them. So beer is losing interest. And again, the main thing, after an initial year of kind of prosperity and hope under Allende, copper prices have tanked internationally, and these new his new robust social and cultural programs that were making working-class people's lives better can no longer really pay for themselves. Inflation spikes. Uh, the, the oil and gas embargo is on the horizon. And as we now know, the CIA is actively working to destabilize his regime um you know since the clinton era we have the memos where henry kissinger is like and we must overthrow the democratically elected government of chile and replace it in a military coup and replace it and, and replace it in a military coup and i think to this day the cia says well we didn't actually actively no manage the coup no we just and who's more trustworthy than the cia we just weren't against it <laughs> So on the night of September 10th, 1973, uh, a, a bunch of these cyberneticists, these CyberSyn, um, Project CyberSyn, oh, sorry, and I, I think I might have missed the part where I say, and it was called Project CyberSyn. I took that as red. So the Project CyberSyn bigwigs are at La Moneda, the presidential palace, um, doing the initial install on the fancy hexagonal mm-hmm. Star Trek room that will be the nerve center Mm-hmm. Of Chile's modern a- analog internet, just yes. like just like the Minitel we discussed in France, decades before um, the Northern Hemisphere had anything like the internet, Chile did. Unfortunately, the next day, September eleventh, nineteen seventy three, is their September eleventh. If you're a left leaning uh, Chilean, the military stages a coup. The army begins to bomb La Moneda Palace, where the hexagonal room is just starting to be installed. I'm sure the oh. I'm sure the the ashtrays and the wood paneling are just coming off of the truck. Mr. Sulu already had his chair. <laughs> and just then the army starts bombing. And You know, in 1973, Kissinger is 50 years old. He's your age. <laughs> and the funny thing is, by the time this episode is released in three weeks, he'll be dead. Oh, we don't know that. He, he will never die. You think he's like Keith Richards? I feel like he's already died 15 times. It's always a body double. And by end of day, September 11, 1973, Allende has killed himself with an AK-47. Uh, supposedly. Supposedly. You know, for, for many years it was assumed widely in Chile that he was not, to the degree that I think he was exhumed in 2010, and a couple subsequent previous analyses do um, seem to hold out, in this case, the fact that it he wasn't the army, that, that he did, you know, that he did not want to put himself through whatever kind of... Uh, Pinochet torture was coming up next. Right. Um, and he shot himself with a machine gun. AK-47, that's a good, uh, that's good, way, for, good way for a Marxist to go out, mm-hmm. I guess. That's a little dark. Sorry. Too soon? Um, and so, and this is, this, uh, now that I mentioned this, this is like six months before my birth. And, oh, yeah. And the experiment has failed. I never lived in a world with a functioning Marxist liberal democracy. Missed it. Oh, Missed the dream. By that by much. By six months. But it's interesting to think that it was, uh, you know, an attempt to to overcome what you what you and I kind of think of as the baked in problems of, of, uh, of Marxist Marx 
style socialism. I wonder, I wonder if, um, if computers would have made a difference. Like what, if we can just get a speak and spell too. What's interesting about it, of course, is that, um, that the, the money that it was required to build the socialist system required on, or depended on a global marketplace for copper. Yeah. So a, a free market, if you will, <laughs> as long as you can sell your, your raw material, your processed raw material to a, capitalist world and you ir- can create a socialist utopia and ironically nixon removing the price controls right were, was one of the things that doomed chilean copper right but you know it was also all the big american copper outfits that are um you know enforcing you know that are lobbying the cia to destabilize allende so you also have the power of free market capitalism again backed up with cia, CIA guns uh, and yeah well, vials of poison and uh propaganda or whatever. Well, now, so Chile now is mining, what, silicon? Uh, uh, is it like, like it, it's all the rare earth stuff maybe? Rare or, earths, or is that just Bolivia? Right? I don't know. They're, they're, we can't make Tesla batteries without the cooperation of South America now because nobody has the right salt, right? Correct. Like, uh, somehow this, when the meteorite hit that killed the dinosaurs, South America got all the vanadium. Yeah. And it's just no fair. Dang vanadium. In a different kind of guns, germs, and steel world, you know, when it's guns, vanadium, and steel, you know, we're the, uh, we're the oppressed hemisphere still living in peat bogs. Well, that's the thing. You know, there are no American vanadium conglomerates that might overthrow a socialist utopia in Chile. Yet, if they have dare if, to dream, when's yeah. Elon getting into when's Elon getting into his vanadium vertical? Maybe we can convince him, and he'll leave Twitter alone. And that concludes Project Cybersyn Entry nine nine three dot AC zero two four five Certificate number five three four three two in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, you can uh, go on from the future and tell us, A, did, did 100 million people 100 die? Million people die of climate change-related uh, difficulties. B, did Chile ever become a socialist paradise based on mining rare earths? They've got a shot. I mean, Venezuela couldn't make a go of it. Right. But maybe... Uh, Fossil fuels. Venezuela is right at the heart of killing 100 million people in Bangladesh. Maybe germanium is the way to go. Uh, C, did Ken and I, were we personally compatible with Marxism and was our show compatible with Marxism? Did we die of an influx of angry emails from millennials telling us that we don't know how hard they have it? And uh, thanking us for being boomers. You can say all of this to Ken on Twitter at Ken Jennings. I'm permanently banned from Twitter. So you can't say anything to me there. They can, you just won't hear. Yeah. You can go to a tweet, Instagram a... and say stuff to me, but it better be nice or you will get blockied. Uh, but you can email us f- with long-form diatribes to theomnibusproject at gmail.com where Mindy Jennings will read them. No, I read them. And um, you can hang out with other futurelings and yell at each other uh, on Facebook and Discord. And uh, every once in a while, Ken goes in and reads the emails, and if you frustrate him, he'll he'll flame you pretty hard. You have to be pretty uh, wrong and combative. If yeah. you're combative or wrong, you'll probably get away with it. If you're combative and wrong, I don't have time for that. No, Ken, Ken will. Uh, I mean, getting flamed by him is one of the great privileges of being a member of our online community of mutualists. <laughs> you can. We should maybe that should be a Patreon perk. Yeah, 
You want you want to you want a letter from Ken? That Ken will just write a mean reply on your Facebook post. You down. Uh, you can mail us things to P.O. Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. Ken, what have you got there in the mail bag? I I'm, I've been so distracted by um, these Mad Magazines we got last week that I have not opened anything. You're still over there reading, and ads. they are they are really sticking it to Saint Elsewhere. Oh yeah, or, or Saint Health Scare. Oh, am I right? Talk about Burns and Spuds McKenzie. See, all of these are your era stuff. I, I yeah, got no you're, interest you're, in any of that. You're like saying elsewhere. No, get me back. I was, to, I was a freshman in college. Yeah, I want uh, I want Mad magazines that are burning George Schultz and Casper Weinberger. No, but you got some of that here. This is uh, it's true. This is from '88, which makes these references a little late. This is Bush era. Yeah, right. But these are uh, uh, very th- these are very timely now. I think. Is there a lot of Clarence Thomas humor? Really tough categories for the $100,000 pyramid. Now, here, here are some of what I think of what would be some really tough categories. Go John, ahead. In the I think it would be funny if the category was things Geraldo Rivera has found. <laughs> oh. Hey, some of these hold up. Unindicted Switch. Reagan aides. Republican-sponsored okay. social programs. Got him. How about this? Bruce Babbitt delegates at the Democratic Convention. Bruce Babbitt delegates. We got a Bruce Babbitt joke. Good joke. Impressionists who don't do Robin Leach. Zing. What about uh, Gary Hart? Anything in there? There is, in fact. There is on the board. We have. No, not really. Yeah. Achievements listed on Donna Rice's resume. Oh, there she goes. Man, there's none of those when you think about it. I know. Sitting on laps. (laughs) Spiro Agnew must work there. Um, No, but we actually did get mail. Uh, Hold on. It's I mean, our show isn't up to uh, 120 minutes yet, so... Is this long? No. Hi, John and Ken, says John. I Hi, John. W- I love the show. I'm a longtime listener and recently became a Patreon donor. Well... A year ago, I published this D&D adventure book. Oh, that's a hardbound book. John, I had your attention, but now I have your interest. Hold that up. Called Dawn of the Necromancer. That is a beautiful It takes volume. characters all the way from 1st to 20th level. I don't know what this means. So is this like a campaign you could do? Well, it's it's got a... a yeah, it's a, a campaign. A, it has an inscription on the on the, uh, the inside leaf. Oh, the back cover says, When the cost of victory may be your life, who better than the dead to pay a price? I can't tell if that means anything or not, but I love it. It does. It is a series of words. It's the author has made it out to you, to John. John from John. Hope you enjoy the book. Hope you enjoy the book. So yeah, are you going to run a campaign based on these? Here's a wood, a wood doppelgolem you might fight. Armor class fifteen. I mean, um, like most of our mail, you never hand it over to me. You just look at it and then put it in your well, special it, basket. This one I think is a hundred percent to you. You guys often reference D&D. I thought John might enjoy looking at a copy of this book. Oh, look at this. He's got a whole universe. He here. sent us the collector's edition cover. Not everybody, John, gets the collector's edition. The, who, did the, uh, who did the illustrations here? This is an know. extremely involved volume. Yeah, and look at the color. There's like, like those, those uh, illust- uh, monster illustrations are nicer than anything in any official D&D book ever. So I feel like this, is, this may be what gets my daughter into Dungeons & Dragons because it's narrative rather than... Uh, requiring Finally, other friends. We got her to Satan. So this was published by Wizards of the Coast? Oh, no. The, it just uses, it uses copyrights yeah, from Wizards just of the Just kidding. Coast. We don't assert ownership over any of this IP. Lol. Lol. Okay, this is, um, this is crazy. You're not going to believe the PS here. Yeah. It's not about D&D. Are you going to be okay with a little pivot? Yeah. PS. I'm not a washing bear, a Patreon donor, but a topic to check out is menser fencing. 
It's a crazy sport that explains why so many World War II Nazi officers had wicked facial scars. <gasps> he predicted the show we did a month ago. Whoa! And he had, you know, obviously no way for him to have heard it. No way for... I just broke a sealed envelope. That's phenomenal. The world wanted there to be an omnibus about... That's the thing. He did not pay scars. for washing bear status. Uh, but he got it anyway. He got I don't, it. I don't like this. Let's, yeah, but we, we can't... Let's, let's repeal that entry. No, you can't take it back. That was fun. Okay, fine. Um, for those of you who are not aware of what washing bear status is, uh, that is a component of our Patreon that helps support the show. Although a lot of you think, why should I support the show? Ken's a millionaire. Remember that I am not a millionaire. <laughs> In fact, should we make t-shirts? I'm barely a thousandaire. Should we make t-shirts where it's like you saying, I am not a millionaire. <laughs> and then it's got the Patreon URL. And then it's got you in the background, uh, you know, surrounded by white lilies. I'm killing a hooker. Yeah. Uh, so go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and support the show. Whatever level you're comfortable, all levels have uh, benefits. Some of them awesome. They all are awesome. And one of the benefits is you get to listen to our monthly addenda show where we do get letters, sometimes angry letters from millennials yelling at us about land acknowledgments. And we reply to them with the to the best of our abilities. So that is worth, surely worth $5 a month to those of you who love the Omnibus Project. How problematic do you think the Mad Magazine A Different World parody is? Let's find out. Well, from 1988, is that, is that kind of the, the time period? Yeah. So this is just prior to a colorblind America. We're still trying, but this is one year before... Do the right thing. That's correct. So, boy, it's anybody's guess. Cosby's show still on the air? Yeah, Cosby is actually here uh, getting pooped. A statue of him is getting pooped on by pigeons, so that's held up. Okay, sure. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how problematic Mad Magazine's An Indifferent World parody was. We also don't know how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, and certainly that it doesn't involve 100 billion deaths in the Ganges Delta. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, however, may be But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.